0: Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the Financial Times podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. It's been suggested that after Brexit, Britain will need to transform itself into an innovative manufacturing economy rather than a rentier economy whose income is derived from handling other people's wealth. This would ultimately benefit those outside London who supported Brexit, the argument goes. So in this episode, we're going to look at Britain's trade in goods and examine how well-placed manufacturers and exporters are to play their part in rebalancing the economy away from a dependence on the financial services sector in London. I'm joined by Sarah Gordon, our business editor, Ali Rennison, head of EU and trade policy at the Institute of Directors, and Peter Campbell, our motor industry correspondent. Let's start with one of our most important manufacturing and export industries. Peter, the car industry is rapidly becoming a high-tech industry, given the increasing computing power of new vehicles. We've seen falling sales in recent months. How important is the industry to the UK economy? And to what extent is uncertainty over Brexit to blame for the current slump? And how well-placed do you think the industry is to benefit from new trading relationships after Brexit?
1: Uh, Well, there were really three questions there. The industry is incredibly important to the British economy. It employs just under 170,000 people in manufacturing and just under 80 billion in turnover. It exports 40 billion of goods. That's 13% of all of Britain's exported goods are cars or parts from the car industry. And 56% of all the cars that are exported go to the EU. So it's incredibly closely integrated with Europe. The reason many of our car plants are here in the first place is because of their access to Europe. More than half the cars that Nissan makes in Sunderland go to the EU. 75% of all the cars Toyota makes, uh, 75% of all the cars Vauxhall make, all of those go to the EU. And that's why the car plants are here. Now, the the reason that uh, car sales have been falling is not necessarily related to Brexit. Car sales have been rising very strongly since the crash. Uh, in fact, sometimes more strongly than in Europe and have come to something of a natural peak. They've been falling not just because of Brexit. There's been a fall in consumer confidence. There have been some price rises because of the falling pound, but largely those have been offset by uh, the PCP pay monthly model that people use, which kind of absorbs quite a lot of that. And those are fixed contracts under which people own their cars, and they have to hand the car back after three years. So people previously would have put off buying a new car, have been forced to make a decision now about buying a new car. And Without that system, uh, car sales would probably have fallen a lot more sharply than they have. So to attribute the fallen sales to Brexit is probably slightly unfair. It's one factor, but there are lots of others. And in the question of how the industry is placed for new trading relationships after Brexit, none of them know what those are going to look like. They're still waiting to hear how integrated we'll be with the EU, whether we're going to do trade deals with other nations.
0: Thanks, Peter. Let's now look at some of the potential trade hurdles Britain will face when it leaves the EU. Many people worry about the prospect of long traffic jams at the borders when Britain leaves the customs union. Peter Kissel, one of our listeners, asks how many miles of lorry queues will there be in Dover after a hard brexit?" Sarah, do we have any answers to this question yet, and how will border crossings be managed
2: even in the event of a soft brexit?" Well, we do have some answers. I mean, the ports and specifically Dover are one of the things that people are most concerned about, the impact of a hard Brexit or indeed of a no deal. I mean, one of the estimates, for example, is that in the event of a no deal... We'll need 5,000 extra customs officials, which is obviously a big ask given that March 2019 is quite soon. But I think just to put some context on it, I mean, we have nearly 5 million heavy goods lorries going from UK ports. More than half of them go through Dover. I think we probably will remember Operation Stack, the um, imaginatively named system whereby when there is a problem at Dover, lorries are parked all the way up on the motorway, the M2 in Kent. But I think that one of the problems that was highlighted by HMRC is that you could have an operation stack not just at Dover, but also at Calais. You know, you could have problems at Calais and at Dover. And one of the estimates was that even in the event of a soft Brexit, if you add time to the processing... I mean, at the moment, if you're an EU lorry, it basically takes you a couple of minutes. You go through Dover, you get on your ferry, you're off. Some of the estimates, if you add two minutes to that customs processing... The queue is 17 miles long, which gets you back to Ashford. Another four minutes takes the queue back to Maidstone. Six minutes back to the M25 and eight minutes and you're up to the Dartford crossing. So I think that gives some estimate of what the potential problems are. I mean, obviously, these are problems that can be addressed. The challenge is, is have we got the necessary resources in place to address them. Number one, have we got a good enough customs system? And there are concerns over the new customs declaration service, which was planned, it's got nothing to do with Brexit. But it is a new technology that's being introduced. And there are big concerns that it's not going to be ready in time for March 2019. HMRC now says it will be. But the National Audit Office raised concerns in the summer that it wouldn't be ready. In the budget, the Chancellor has put aside an extra £3 billion to spend on Brexit preparations. And certainly the businesses that I speak to have said, please, please, please make sure that quite a lot of that goes to HMRC and to customs to deal with some of these processing issues.
0: Could the EU's Authorised Economic Operators Scheme,
2: which offers special status, allowing traders to clear customs quickly, could that help with this? It could. I mean, it's a kind of trusted trader scheme. So you need to fulfil certain minimum standards, then you get a stamp saying that you are an authorised economic operator and this essentially speeds up your journey through customs and ports. The issue is is that very few UK companies have that status, only just over 600 companies. There are 10 times as many German companies who already have that. I mean it's one of the very few things that you can actually do as a company to prepare for Brexit given the still very great unknowns around what kind of deal we'll get in the end. The worry is is that if the rate of application speeds up, it's going to be very difficult for HMRC to process those applications in time for March 2019. I mean, advisors to companies, management consultants, say that the normal time is 12 months from beginning the application to getting the status approved. Apparently, that time has now gone up to 18 months in any case, showing that there is already some pressure on the system. 18 months obviously takes us to D-Day, so...
3: I think the other thing to think about is that we at the IOD have certainly said that companies should be looking to see whether it's suitable for their business model. And it's interesting that you don't see HMRC really extolling this at the moment and saying, you know, it's in your interest to apply right now. And that is because AEO, and there are different categories of it, is not right for every single business model. And so you have to go through the criteria, which I won't go into too much detail now, to see if it fits for your company. It's really designed for companies that currently are trading with non-EU countries, the whole purpose of it. So there's a question mark about if you're applying for it now, the criteria say this is only for companies that are currently in a supply chain with rest of world trade, i.e. not just with the EU. There are about 130,000 companies in HMRC have said that only trade with the EU. Is that something at this stage they should really be applying for? It is, as I think Sarah mentioned, one of those few things that you can point to as a potential facilitator. And I think HMRC are cautious that because of that, they don't want to have a rush of companies applying for it who may not actually fit the actual criteria or have it presented as some kind of panacea. But in the period of time that we're now in, which is how on earth do I plan for it, there are some things relating to no deal that are knowns. There are a lot of unknown unknowns relating to moving back to World Trade Organization terms of trade with the EU. What you would ideally have, I suppose, is once HMRC has its own standalone one, it then would negotiate a mutual recognition agreement with the EUs. But it's hard for companies to know whether that's something they should apply for if we haven't even gotten into that stage of negotiating with the EU yet to know that that is going to be reciprocated? And does that help you on the other side of the border, in a sense? Sarah, could the government be
2: giving more help? it could be telling companies to see whether they are the right companies to be applying for AEO status. And they could also simplify the application process as the Australians have. I mean, at the moment, it's a 17 page application, which has some corkers of questions in it. And obviously, it's an onerous process to go through that application, particularly, as you say, if it's not the most appropriate one. Yeah,
3: certainly, we expect HMRC at some point to try and review the processes to simplify the procedure for applying. Having said that, The AEO comes under something called the Union Customs Code, which is, amongst other things, what HMRC are rolling out to replace the current chief system, Sarah mentioned. And as long as you're in the EU, there is limited flexibility with which you can tinker with the Union Customs Code. I don't know if HMRC feel entirely confident at this point, whether they can really do a huge amount while they're still within the confines of the EU. But Really, to tackle all of this stuff, we have to be in a position where we're able to talk to the other side of the negotiating table about all of these things, and we're just not there yet. You feel like you're sort of floundering around trying to find a way out without being able to take the discussions forward right now.
0: Thanks, Ali. Let's move on to another potential hurdle to Britain's trade ambitions outside the EU. While much of the focus is on tariffs and customs, regulations are an even bigger barrier to trade. When the UK is exporting to key markets in the EU and the US, it will need either a bureaucratic process to show that it is meeting the rules of the destination economy or to sign a deal trying to get its own standards recognised instead. One of our listeners, Michael Tatnell, asks how many teams of negotiators are needed to negotiate replacement trade deals with the rest of the world? How many of such teams do we have? How long will each set of negotiations take? And will I, at age 78, live to see the end of it? Ali, what's your view on this and how the government is handling the issue so far?
3: Certainly, we have heard time and again, and I don't doubt it from government, that the Department of International Trade is in this process of rolling over, replicating, converting these existing trade agreements to bilaterals. And I think there are a couple of sort of considerations there. Yes, the idea is to have them ready upon exit day. We don't know if that means that a transitional period that we're hopeful for getting either makes that easier or more difficult, because you need to know at what stage you would be actually out of the EU and substantively applying it in your own capacity Will we have our own negotiating capacity in full come 2019, or are we going to be in a transitional period where it's still outsourced a bit to the EU? So that's what DIT are doing currently. And one of the things that you have to consider there is to make sure that these countries know that this is not an opportunity to extract better concessions, shall we say. This is really about transitioning them. And obviously, if you're a third country, the temptation is there to want to try and extract better terms for itself. But I think the government has made clear that it is seeking purely to try it for continuity purposes to make them into UK trade agreements, which in some areas is pretty straightforward. You can do a copy and paste in other areas where particularly with the countries that we have more integrated relationships through the EU. So Turkey, for example, um, is in a customs union with the EU. That's how we trade with them. Norway, their relationship with us is brokered through the single market relationship they have with the EU. The more integrated these countries are with the EU in terms of their trade relations, the more difficult it becomes to just do a simple copy and and paste exercise. But really, I think also, and Liam Fox, the trade secretary, has made this point clear, they also sort of need to know where we're going to end up to a certain point as well. Are we going to be in any kind of customs union with the EU or not? Because that changes whether you're going to have things like rules of origin being applied to trade with Turkey or not.
1: Let's not forget, everyone bans around the term free trade agreement like it's going to be an open door for Britain to sell its goods everywhere. People talk about a trade deal with the US, a trade deal with China, where some of our biggest car makers export lots of their cars. But free trade deals, if they go wrong, can be absolutely catastrophic for an industry. We saw this in Australia recently, which closed down its last car plant when Holden closed its doors. The reason the Australian car industry died was at least in part due to a free trade deal they signed with Thailand. As a result, cheap Thai-made cars flooded the market and Australia, when they tried to export cars to Thailand, found all these non-tariff barriers they hadn't expected because they'd done a free trade deal in a great rush. So when we talk about free trade agreements, they're not necessarily the panacea that they're always held up to be. You have to be very careful when you sign them that you're not accidentally inhibiting your own industry.
0: Ali, what's your view on this? It's interesting. I mean,
3: Australia, for a long time, it didn't follow the path of its neighbour, New Zealand. It really did protect its car industry for a very, very long time. Some people have different views about the quality of some of those cars before they opened up to competition in the first place, but I'll leave that one there. So I definitely sort of can see that, I mean, every trade agreement will have winners and losers, and sometimes the effects are more distributed, whereas they can be a little bit more concentrated if you find your job outsourced to a third country. So there is that sort of consideration. I think the UK government has a huge opportunity in the next at least two years, instead of hurtling down the path of signing the first trade agreement as soon as we're able to come 2019, if we are able to during the transition, instead focuses on really building up public support, figuring out what its strategic priorities are. Is it about negotiating experience with easy sort of like-minded countries that maybe don't deliver a huge amount of economic benefit? New Zealand is pretty open already. Or are we trying to go for the hard ones right away? It's a pretty interesting thing to be able to reconstitute your trade policy from scratch. And obviously the extent to which you're able to negotiate on lots of these things will depend on where we end up with the EU. But I think the next couple of years is an opportunity to really try and build a consensus for how do we do things differently from other countries that have gone before.
0: And are you optimistic that that will happen, given what's been going on recently?
3: I think it depends on if you're looking at it from the point of view of, do I think that we're going to run down and do the first trade agreement with the first country that offers it to us? I mean, right now, DIT is pretty focused on what they call, as I mentioned before, continuity agreements, which may or may not be wrapped up as new trade agreements. They are important for continuity purposes, so their focus is pretty much there. And they are building these sort of working groups that they've talked about with certain key markets. And so at the moment, I think, you know, for all the talk about, oh, my gosh, are we going to accept chlorinated chicken from the US? I think the pace of what they're doing at the moment is about right.
0: Let's take another question from one of our listeners. This time it's Paul Entwistle from here in the UK, who wrote in to ask, how will we deal with complex value chains such as cars and planes? So I'll start with you, Peter.
1: So the global supply chains for the car industries are incredibly complex. In Britain, we buy more than half all the parts that go into our cars come from the EU. But it's not just they flow here. Sometimes they cross the channel three, four, five times during their production as components before they go into the finished vehicles. So any delay at the borders, any non-tariff barriers, any customs checks they have to do will slow the entire process down. Now, all the car makers in the UK operate just-in-time delivery and manufacturing processes. This is where parts arrive at the plant on a truck in 10-minute delivery windows, and they're then put onto the car maybe an hour later before the car drives off later that day. So it's an incredibly tight operation. Any delay at the border of those parts coming in kind of blows the whole manufacturing process apart. This is what the companies are worried about, not just the tariffs, but about the supply chains. And there are issues such as rules of origin, which we've kind of touched on already, whereby currently 60% of all the cars that we make contain EU parts. Well, that's fine when you're selling to Korea because we use German gearboxes and French parts and parts from Poland and all over Europe. But even if we get free trade deals with these other countries and they say that 60% of the parts have to be local, they have to come from Britain. And we simply don't make enough parts here. We don't make alloy wheels. We don't make gearboxes. We don't make central control systems for the car's electronics. There are lots of things that we don't do here that we simply can't do here because of the scale of the market that the car industry is going to have to deal with if it wants to be able to trade freely with the rest of the world after Brexit. So these are huge, tangible, technical questions. There's almost no way around.
2: It's interesting that a number of companies, particularly smaller companies, are actually already saying that they will decide not to comply with the requirements to report Origin throughout their supply chain to qualify for example for WTO rules and I think this is one of the many myths around Brexit since we're unspinning it in this podcast which is that suddenly a default to WTO rules makes trading easy for all exporters it simply doesn't I mean a lot of companies they don't have the data on their supply chains and they simply don't have the capacity going forward to provide the kind of information on their supply chains that will allow them to qualify under WTO. Valley.
3: It's interesting in terms of, you know, are there way around things like rules of origin? Yes. But it comes back to your point about how complicated is it to find your way around it. So without getting into too many technical details, you have these accumulation agreements that allow you effectively, if you have two trading partners, you can say between the UK and the EU, right, we'll have bilateral accumulation, which means that the content produced from an EU country and the content from the UK country can be put together. That's more of an issue when you start getting into sort of the Nissans of the world that may have parts sent over from a third country to the UK to be processed and sent to the EU. They don't technically count. So you have to get into this thing that the Japanese government said very early on is if we can't be in any customs union, could we have diagonal accumulation or full accumulation that allows you to sort of count the content from all three countries But again, in terms of proving that, that's why you get a lot of discussion about what is the utilization rate for FTAs around rules of origin. It's only about 50, 55 percent sometimes because people do prefer to pay the tariffs just in terms of time and resource.
1: Because the cost of working out where all the parts in a car come from is insane because there are 30,000 parts in all the different components that go in. And each of those has come from a different supplier that might be somewhere around the world. So the cost of finding that figure of what percentage of your parts come from the UK is, you're right, sometimes much bigger than the actual tariff itself.
3: Which is why you get, I would say, more loudly than any other part of industry, the automotive industry, being very clear they would prefer to be in a customs union for that, amongst other things, sort of non-tariff, but sort of related to tariff, but not the actual tariff issue in and of itself. They estimate, I think, for every extra day that a good is stuck in customs, it's about equivalent to about a 2 to 6% tariff. And I think a lot of these things would be potentially surmountable if we had more time to negotiate them. That's the biggest threat, I suppose, that we're up against is how do we make sure not only that we have enough time to negotiate all the details of this new supposedly non-customs union arrangement and then making sure on top of that that once the details are sewn up because a business doesn't plan on the basis of a general framework if there are changes involved such as rules of origin coming in for the first time between the UK and the EU in terms of trade it's okay once the deal is signed sealed and delivered then I need at least 12 to 18 months to then adjust because it's hard to sort of anticipate what those new rules of origin are going to be.
0: So given how complicated this is, even for very large companies, how will our small and medium-sized enterprises cope with the challenge that they're facing when we leave the EU? I do think,
3: I mean, we just have some data out on this that I was presenting to the Treasury Select Committee, and you do find that the smaller end of the scale, the companies that are only trading with the EU, the SMEs, are less advanced in planning. You do tend to find that pattern emerging. And it's interesting that even though about two-thirds of all of our members are looking at some form of contingency planning, I was curious to see, well, the rest just think they won't be affected. And when you ask them, about half of them say, well, actually, we just can't plan for this, so we're going to wait. So my biggest concern out of all of this is that the companies that feel they can't plan and then are hit when the sort of full totality of what changes come into effect.
2: It's not only small companies, is it either? I've been talking to lots of the advisors, which I do, you know, the lawyers and the management consultants who are advising the multinationals, and they say there's a real spectrum of preparation from financial services at the top. But even, you know, things like some of the larger energy companies and the commodity traders and people like that, actually, this still isn't really on their radar. Turning to you, Peter, how prepared are the car
0: manufacturers?
1: Well, the car manufacturers themselves are obviously drawing up contingency plans. Many of them have plants all over the world that they could easily divert work to, not tomorrow morning, but over a number of years when the models come up for renewal. There's a danger that those cars could just be sent elsewhere where it suddenly becomes cheaper to make them because the car industry is very global. They don't invest on the basis of emotion or flag waving. They invest on the basis of a business case. Currently, the UK has some of the best plants, but that is because of our relationship, partly with the EU. And when that goes, those plants become less competitive.
3: Particularly, and I think you often hear talk about what the profit margins are in the automotive industry, and we're talking very low single-digit figures, two to four percent. So that is one of those areas where the costs can make the difference, so to speak.
1: And for some of the suppliers to the industry, their margins are so low that the cost of complying with customs checks for exporting their parts, which they need to to be viable, would wipe out their profit margin. And even the big car plants have very, very tight operations. Nissan, which runs for twenty-three hours a day and is reckoned to be one of the most advanced car plants in the world in Sunderland says just six minutes of downtime on the line pushes their plant to a loss. So the margin for error is absolutely tiny.
0: Well, lots of unanswered questions there. Thanks to Sarah, Ali and Peter. And thank you for listening. We'll be returning to the subject of trade regulations next week when we look at the impact of Brexit on medical research and the pharmaceutical industry. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com.